word of prayer. Merciful Father, through holy baptism, you called us to be your own possession. Grant that our lives may evidence the working of your Holy Spirit in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, according to the image of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. All right, so uh, we're just uh, continuing our Bible study on baptism. So um, we've been going... uh, for our visitors' sake and anyone new on the podcast. Uh, we've been going kind of through this book, Lutheranism 101, which uh, we're not really using the book so much, but the table of contents is kind of an outline of uh, all the various topics that come along with being a Lutheran. And uh, baptism is obviously one of the major major topics of, of being a Bible-believing Lutheran. Um, one of the things that we like to talk about the most because it, uh, the way I've kind of been describing the means of grace or the um, word and sacraments, depending on how you want to say that, is that these means of grace, these ways that Jesus delivers his grace from the cross to us in time and history and place, are the engine of the Lutheran car, right? This is uh, what, what keeps us going. This is what drives us. Um, this is the really the the driving force of our theology is that Jesus comes to us and gives us the gifts of His cross and resurrection, and baptism is of course uh, one of those gifts that He gives, along with the Lord's Supper and the Word um, preached and read and confessed. So what we've done so far, just by way of review, is uh, define baptism. So the word itself simply means to wash with water, uh, to wash with water. And in Matthew 28, um, well, first of all, Luther, Luther's uh, definition is helpful. Baptism is not just plain water, but it is water combined with what? Word. God's word. And what? where is that word of God? Matthew 28. Go therefore and baptize. Go therefore and wash with water. <clears throat> In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's our kind of working definition, and uh, we start with that, right? We start uh, with with this this basic definition, and then we're going to see how the Bible defines what this looks like, what its power is, what it does, who should do it why we should be doing it, so on and so forth. And we looked at, um, last week we finished up looking at all the major passages in the New Testament that discuss baptism. So we looked at um, not just Matthew 28, but uh, Romans 6 and Acts 8 and Acts 2 and Matthew 3 and all sorts of Bible passages that um, discuss baptism and uh, different aspects of it. And for that reason... Uh, surprisingly enough, the Bible actually very thoroughly covers our theology of baptism. We saw in the Bible a lot of aspects of our theology of baptism, of the Lutheran theology of baptism. Um, I think if you uh, just – we could just kind of leave it at those all those passages we discussed, and um, you'd have a much better working of baptism um, than maybe you did before if you – if it was all refresher for you, then – um, you still have a very good working knowledge of uh, baptism according to the scriptures. Now uh, that we've done the scripture work and we've done the definition work, um, today we're just going to finish up uh, next next week we're into Thanksgiving Eve service and then the week after that's Advent midweeks um, and then until the new year. So uh, we're, this is our last Lutheranism 101 of this year, so uh, that's very sad, but it's good because we'll get to do more fun stuff uh, during Advent. But for tonight, we just want to finish up the topic of baptism, and there's just a number of uh, little things here and there we want to just reemphasize. A lot of it we saw in the scripture, I think, but um, we want to just kind of follow along with maybe some of the things in the book here and pick up um, a couple of basic questions about baptism uh, will especially deal with 
the topic of infant baptism, which is maybe the most controversial of the baptismal aspects or topics. So uh, the first thing we wanted to talk about tonight is uh, what Luther says it like this, what benefits does baptism give? What benefits does baptism give? Uh, Or we could also say, what is the power of baptism? What exactly does baptism do? Okay, so we know what it is, but what does that do? What benefits does it give? Uh, Does anyone know Luther's explanation to this in the small catechism? We've had memory work on it before. Yeah, 1 Peter 3.21 is baptism now saves you. So that's good. Uh, So we know that it saves. Luther's going to use the term rescues, which goes along with that. It rescues from uh, death and the devil. So first of all, I'll I'll start at the beginning. Um, The question, what, what benefits does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins. Rescues from death and the devil and gives eternal life, life resurrected. salvation. Resurrected. Yeah, salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. <clears throat> Works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and devil, gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. Uh, so we have saves or rescues. We have uh, eternal life or eternal salvation. And uh, we have uh, rescues, we'll we'll add on to this, rescues from death and the devil. And, of course, the forgiveness of sins. So this sounds pretty broad. This sounds kind of like a very broad understanding of the gospel, of the work of Christ. And that is true. Um, If you continue reading in the small catechism, you get to the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about in the new year. Uh, What does Luther say that the Lord's Supper does? It forgives sins and gives life and salvation. Uh, Forgives sins and gives life and salvation. So uh, we can say in one sense that... Baptism and the Lord's Supper and also the uh, absolution of a pastor, which does what? Forgives sins. Um, It is all the same grace. It's all the same God's favor toward us. It's the the same gospel. And why is that? Well, it's because it's coming from the same cross and tomb of Jesus Christ. Uh, So he is delivering his grace to us in a multitude of ways. And why does he do that? One, because we are sinners and we need a lot of grace. Uh, Two, because he is abundant in his steadfast love. He is abundant in his grace. And he wants to shower us with all these blessings. That said... I think that we can start to distinguish. Whoops. This is why we got these nice line of force. Just wipe, wipe right off that. Um, we can start to distinguish the different means of grace to some degree, uh, the and the sacraments and and what they give. So the question is, how then is the Lord's Supper different from baptism? Or how is baptism different than absolution? How is baptism different than the preached word? And that, those are things that I think uh, did come up to some degree in the scripture passages uh, we looked at. But I would summarize it this way, that baptism gives... An identity. It gives an identity. What identity does it give you? Children of God. Yeah, to become children of God. That's a good starting place, to become children of God. 
God adopts us, right? He gives us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And then uh, you can see how um, God gives to his baptized children specifically this this relationship with them that uh, just like at Jesus, one of the best places for this would probably be Jesus' own baptism, right, where he trades places with us. But uh, what happens at Jesus' baptism there? You have the Trinitarian relationship on display where the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that's the same thing he says to us at our baptism. He says, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And the dove comes down. Yeah, and the Spirit comes down. And then that kind of informs our reading of whenever the uh, Scripture talks about receiving the Spirit in the New Testament, that this is a baptiz- that that's baptismal language to receive the Spirit. And uh, so just like Jesus receives the Spirit, right, and gives the Spirit, we also receive the Spirit uh, in our hearts. And that, that changes us. Um, we got that Ezekiel passage that uh, he cha- changes our heart of stones into hearts of flesh. He gives us a whole new heart. It's a whole new spirit, a whole new person really that we become when we are baptized Um, and christ becomes our brother right he becomes our co-heir he's going to receive the inheritance of eternal life because he's the only begotten son of the father and we receive that insane inheritance from him Um, so we have this identity this uh, identity as as children of god and it's also the other part of the identity too one of the things that I noticed going back through all these baptismal passages in the New Testament that really is emphasized over and over again, um, especially in Romans 6, but also in like uh, Titus 3, is this connection of our identity with um, the passion of Christ, uh, or passion and and resurrection especially. I'm especially thinking about this as um, preparing for Ken's funeral a little bit, is this connection with the resurrection of of Christ. Um, so Romans 6, right? You who have died to sin no longer live in it. Uh, you who have died with Christ in your baptism uh, will certainly uh, be raised again with him. You will have the same resurrection he has. Our bapti- The baptismal font goes right with the cross, right? The... the um, the font is where we are intimately connected to Jesus' own death and resurrection. And like I said, especially the resurrection, um, to know that – well, a couple things. So one, um, to continue to connect us to the catechism a little bit, um, when Luther talks about what baptism should do for our daily lives – what does he say? He, should, he says we should, by daily contrition and repentance, uh, drown our sins in those waters and rise again to live a new life with Christ. To know that our sins have died with Christ and that those waters are a real um, washing away and drowning of our, of our sin that Christ takes on in the cross. And then, then we get to rise again with him to new life um, now. In, the, in a daily sense on this earth, but then eternally, uh, that is, that, that's who we are, right? We're resurrected Christians. We're Christians who have already died, right? And if you've already died, you can't die again. Um, this is the way that Paul talks about this is you're, you're already dead, right? You've already died, and you've already risen again to new life. And so even if you die, yet shall you live. Um, and I was so the reason I said about Ken's funeral is because I, was, I put together the bulletin today, and at the beginning of the funeral service, I think I mentioned this last week. The uh, passage Romans six is is read responsibly, and we have all this baptismal language at the beginning of a funeral service, uh, which is which is really beautiful. Um, Got to get there. Baptism, confirmation, wedding, funeral. Here we go. 
just went through your entire life very quickly. Um, yeah, so the pastor reads this. Uh, in so And this is when the casket is um, covered with a funeral pall, which we'll talk about actually in just a second. But um, the funeral pall is the white garment that covers the casket. And it, it's about it's to remind just like you received the white garment in your baptism, the funeral pall is a continuation of that. That this person was covered uh, with Christ's righteousness, and that's from that's a we looked at that passage uh, in Galatians. Is that Galatians three that you were clothed with Christ's righteousness? Does someone have that in their notes? It's Galatians something. Galatians three twenty-seven. Okay. Anyway, the pastor reads this in holy baptism. Name was clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness that covered all. His sin. St. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then the congregation responds with the rest of Romans 6, 4, and 5. We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him into death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this is the identity of the Christian is one who's already died and been raised again. And that happens at our baptism. So when we remember our baptism, what we're remembering is that we have eternal life, that we have resurrection, uh, that we have the the death to sin and the life to God to God in Christ that Christ has. Um, this is I'm not trying to make anyone cry or anything, but um, Annie gave me a note of like things to potentially uh, think about when I'm writing this sermon. For Ken and uh, she said in there, which I didn't know this, he looked at his baptismal certificate every day mm-hmm. and and thought of who he was in God. That's kind of amazing. So um, that that's what we yeah we have our uh, we have our um, baptismal certificates in my house hanging on our dining room wall, and we do kind of look at them every day. But I never like look at it and think I'm baptized. Right. But Luther says the same thing. Luther says um, every time you wash your face, think of your baptism, right? Because uh, God instituted water for this this reason to be the saving flood, and any water can remind us of the fact that we're baptized. So um, same kind of idea. But uh, the certificate itself doesn't you know mean anything, but the certificate does mean something, right? Because it is. Uh, like you can still be baptized without a certificate, but the certificate's nice because then it's just again a physical reminder. So um, this is the benefit of baptism: is it gives us this identity, right? It obviously gives us the gospel. I mean, it, it forgives our sins. It gives us this forgive the forgiveness of sins. Um, no no doubt about that. But the idea of identity in that forgiveness, I think, is especially important. Okay. Um, as we're just kind of flipping through the book, book here, uh, the ne- one of the next questions is how, how does baptism work? So kind of who should do it and what does it look like? Um, and we already talked about that with Matthew 28 is that when Jesus gives the command to baptize, who's the only people he's talking to? Pastors. The pastors up on the mountain, right? The 12, the 12 um, or the 11 in this case in Matthew 28. Um that he gives this command to the apostolic office, to, to the pastoral office. That said, uh, there's also nothing in Scripture to say that uh, other Christians shouldn't baptize other than the normal way is that the pastor's baptized. But in cases of emergency, the, the history of the church is pretty consistent on this. That in cases of emergency, it's okay for lay people to baptize um, the in whenever there's not a pastor around and someone's about to die. Either the two common circumstances for that are um, babies born in a hospital that uh, or babies who are born, whether or not it's in a hospital, that there's not a pastor around and they're close to death. Um, something goes you know wrong, and uh, there's a lot of stories of you know. Catholic or Lutheran nurses or whatever baptizing babies in those circumstances. The other circumstances like a death deathbed conversion, um, where an, likely an adult 
uh, converts, never been baptized on their deathbed, and there's not time to get a pastor there. So uh, there's yeah. Oh, battlefields. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Which kind of like a deathbed type conversion. Well, yeah, yeah. Right. Or like a, 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 it just last starts. minute. Yeah. Yeah, in a, in a specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the back of the, um, I think any recently published, I th- I've said this before, but in the back of any recently published uh, like Bible or hymnal by CPH, there's this holy baptism in cases of emergency. So you can look at that and see that there. Um, so that's kind of how baptism works. Other than that, um, I talked a little bit about the development of the baptismal rite throughout history. So basically, um, in the early church, the baptismal rite was uh, pretty simple. They, the Didache, which is this early Christian document, um, really early on, like like first century early on, um, says cold running water is preferable. And... Um. Cold running water. Yeah. I don't uh, – I think it's because they didn't have plumbing. So – It probably was the cleanest. Yeah, clean water was like rivers mm-hmm. or creeks Spring. or cricks, depending <laughs> on where you're from. Got to get the Midwestern transplants. Yeah. <laughs> here, we, here we go. Um, so I think that's the reason for that. Um, but they would have baptismal fonts too, um, shaped in the. Uh, the, the, one of the oldest fonts is at the church in Ephesus, which you can still see the remnants of, and it's in the shape of a womb because this is the birthing place of new Christians. It's the place of new birth. So um, you can see, look up Google Image or DuckDuckGo or whatever you use. Um, church of Ephesus baptismal font. You can see it. I don't know why they thought a womb looked like that. It's kind of like a – I don't know. It's just like kind of a swirly shape, but um, – I don't know. Maybe it does, I guess. Uh, yeah. don't want to think about it too hard. So. I never think about it. It's good. Um, so. What was I talking about? The right. Oh, yes. So then, then uh, as the right develops, um, Throughout history, uh, the um, medieval church added a lot of extra things to it, which we're going to talk about some of them in a second. And Luther trimmed it down because he wanted to get back to the water and the word. And so our Lutheran baptismal rites come basically from Luther. Um, He wrote two. One was a little more complex and one was a little more simple. And we have both of them in our... What the pastor has in the office, you can look at it if you want. It's called the agenda. It's where all the rights are. Um, but that's basically where our right comes from, and it includes, you know, it's the basic thing is there, right? Baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the water, right? That's, I mean, that's all you really need, in some sense. But we also include things like the creed and scripture readings and the flood prayer, which we've talked about, and all these other prayers, uh, which beautify and teach about what baptism is um so that that's the beauty of of having extra scripture prayer um paul says everything is sanctified by the word of god and prayer and so we always aim to do that in our services so that's kind of the administration side of baptism um the other thing uh another thing just going on um for the next half hour here so uh, looking at aspects of baptism is some customs of baptism. So these are some of the things that got added in throughout church history that are not, um, you know, commanded by the scriptures to be done with the baptism. But the scriptures do speak of baptismally in some sense or another, 
and are and are helpful again for teaching. So um, I have these in no particular order, but uh, the candle. So Jesus says, "You are the light of the world," talking to the faithful, the Christians, the baptized. Right? You are the light of the world, and uh, well, he said, and the city set on a hill. And then he also says, "I am the, I am the light, I am the light of the world." So um, uh, he gives us his light, right? That's the idea. Um, John one, right? Uh, when the light has shown, uh, the darkness can no longer be. And so the idea of a candle with the baptism is that they've received the light of Christ in their hearts, um, right? They've received the Spirit. And that's going to be connected to something else here soon. Uh, the the white cloth, kind of already talked about, because that's also connected to a later something later in life, the funeral of Paul. But this is that Galatians verse. You've been clothed with Christ's righteousness in your baptism, and that the white cloth is also the same tradition as um, a lot of people will have the babies in a, a white baptismal gown of some kind um and uh those are often like family heirlooms and stuff so uh, that's kind of where that comes from you can close with the righteousness of christ and the garment if you think about garments in the bible it's i don't i don't want to get too far on a rabbit trail but it's a um it's a motif all the way throughout scripture so you have the uh the first instance of a garment in the bible is what adam and eve, adam and eve. Right, Adam and Eve uh, sin, and they need to be covered up of their shame. Right, and that's an animal skin. All the early church fathers said that was probably a lamb skin, because it's the Lamb of God. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but that's kind of a nice thought. But then you have all these passages throughout the Bible, so um, about garments of righteousness. You also have. Um, yeah, put on the armor of God. That's kind of connected to that. Uh, Isaiah says, um, so there's always this contrast of like, there's the fig leaves in Genesis, which are kind of false garments that that's attempts at self-justification. And then you have the garments of righteousness, which are the garments that God gives. So in Isaiah, um, you have the sinful garments, which are like, our sins are like filthy garments, before God, um, they're unclean garments, and but but then Christ gives us, but then God gives us garments of righteousness. So you have this this theme, and then you also have who, where where's another major place you see um, garments in the in the Bible? At the cross. Well, when yeah, Jesus at is the ripped, cross he's stripped. When right? Jesus comes so, back, he's in the white. Robe. He's in totally shame. Yeah, total shame. But then when he's buried, they put him in white cloths, and then uh, those are the sign of the resurrection, that he's no longer dead, but he's alive, is that the cloth, the, the disciples see the cloths lying there, right? And, um, and yeah, it's uh, Mary, um, Mary Magdalene sees him dressed in white, I believe. I think that's in John, in John's account of the resurrection. And he tells her, don't touch her, don't touch me. Yeah. Don't cling on me. Yeah. It's his personal space. Um, <laughs> makes sense. All right. So um, something that you may have not seen before, it's kind of coming back into Lutheran practice. Something that I like a lot um, that I've done here since I've been here is the anointing with oil. Anointing with oil, and that is um, one of those things that I think Luther left it in one of his rites, but then took it out in the other one. But um, it comes from a couple places in Scripture, so uh, we'll look at this really quickly. It's kind of an interesting thing. In Second Corinthians one, we look at Second Corinthians one. Oh, I turned right there. Uh, verses 21 and 22. 
There's this word in the New Testament that seems to be connected with baptismal language and with oil. And so this is where the idea comes from. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. So I'll read it. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ, he who establishes us with you in Christ. So one of the things we mentioned last week is the communal aspect of baptism, that we're baptized into the body of the church. We're baptized into the body of believers. We're baptized. We welcome the baptized into the house of the Lord, if you remember in the baptismal rite. Him who establishes us with you in Christ, and that in Christ language is already baptismal language, right? That we're in Christ. We're, we're, um, I like the language Paul uses, I think in Colossians, that our life is hidden with God in Christ. Um, it's that identity language and has anointed us in God so anointing there um, if you think about anointing in the Bible it's anointing with what? generally oil, oil. right? and it's anointing uh, in the in the Old Testament where does that happen? Uh, David and Saul yeah, it happens for kings and priests uh, kings and priests are anointed. Um, and Peter picks up this language that we're the priesthood of all believers, um, that we have a certain kind of priesthood in Christ, um, and our king is Christ. But He, God anoints us now. He anoints all believers. Uh, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in is God, who has also sealed us, Sealed us. So this is the word that we want to look out for, that we're sealed in Christ and has given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, given us the spirit in our hearts, that's the baptismal language, right? How do we receive the spirit in our hearts? We're baptized, right? That's that's where we the spirit comes down into our hearts. Now, this, this word seal, um, it's a... It's a really nice word. Um, it's really fun to say in Greek, so I'll just tell you what it is. Not that you care. Sphragis. Sphragis. S-P-H. Sphragis. Sphragis. It's hard to say. Yeah, but it's fun. Sphragis. Um, to seal. Uh, our sealing in, in Christ, you can think about that... Uh, like you're putting a lid on something tight, right? Um, our life in Christ is sealed. It's sure. It's certain. It's not going to leak out. Um, and the anointing and the sealing go together. So in the baptismal, right, you have this language of being marked as one redeemed by Christ crucified, being marked um, by God. And that's you put it like a. It's also like a seal on an envelope, right? So this is in outside the Bible. The sphragis was the uh, seal on a letter, right? The um, the wax that got stamped and it put the mark on it. Yep. Um, so that's where that word comes from. And this is what God is doing to us in our baptism. He's putting his mark on us, his crucifix on us. Right, he's marking us as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. Yeah. The new in, uh, international version says, mm-hmm. as he sets his seal of ownership on us. Yeah. So that's a little looser translation, but it's good in that it's true. He puts it. He owns us. Right. He puts his uh, the mark of the cross on us. So as that goes with anointing. Um, as it does here. And then this is also all the same language. We won't go there, but all the same language is repeated in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, if you want to read that later. But um, what? so what I do, I'll just tell you what I do first, which you've seen uh, probably, is um, I have anointing oil. 
and I'll put some on my finger, and then I anoint in the shape of the cross on the forehead for the baptized. Now, James also says, uh, in James, I think it's 1.14, if I'm not mistaken, that sounds right to me. Um, I did not write it down. That whenever someone is sick, the elders of the church, by which he means the pastor is not how we use the term elder, uh, should go and anoint the sick with healing oil. And um, so that's where the in the baptismal rite, the language is I anoint you with the healing oil of Jesus Christ. Um, that comes from James 1, 4, I think it's 114. Um, and this is a nice thing um, in a lot of ways. So the other connection with the oil other than the sphragis, or the sphragis, um, is that traditionally anointing oil in the New Testament by Christians throughout history, this is not in the Bible, but just in church history, is um, olive oil because that's what the, they had in the Bible, um, right? The olive trees. You have olive oil, and then it's mixed with frankincense and myrrh. Uh, frankincense and myrrh, which are uh, you know, scents, basically, anointing spices. And who else was anointed with frankincense Jesus. and myrrh? Jesus, right? So when we're connecting you through your baptism to the cross, Jesus' death and resurrection, and remember, not just at his birth, frankincense and myrrh, but also at his death and resurrection, when he was anointed for burial, Jesus was anointed with these spices and with oil, uh, with the anoint the expensive anointing oil um, by the woman, uh, this is an image of connecting you with Christ. And then uh, what I also do, which is a traditional practice, which I really like, and I always end up saying this in the sermon on Ash Wednesday. But on Ash Wednesday, you mix. You're not supposed to mix ashes with water because it'll burn the skin, um, whatever chemical reaction. But you mix the ashes with a little bit of oil, so it's a nice little paste that I can put the cross on your forehead with. Um, I mix it with the same baptismal oil. So you get the ashes to ashes, dust to dust on the one hand. On the other hand, you're getting the life-giving uh, anointing of, of Christ. And it's a way to remember your baptism. So, And when I think about James 1, 2... Um, with the healing when someone is sick, it is actually a very nice kind of theological thought that um, – now you could say in a kind of very materialistic sense, well, that doesn't really like heal them, does it? This isn't like some kind of weird like performing of miracles. Well, I don't know. You know, Whether or not it helps people physically – heal um i mean it can't hurt right um but what is the ultimate life-giving medicine what what is the thing that actually allows us to live the wages of sin is what death, death. so how do we live we get our sins forgiven washed yeah washed away so when we anoint with oil to help someone heal, one of the things we're saying is just remember your baptism. Um, if we if we if we not baptize with oil, but if we use oil in a baptism, it's a reminder of baptism. And where are your sins forgiven? They're forgiven in baptism. And so, if I go to the hospital and I say, "Would you like to be anointed with oil?" and they say, "Yeah," and I anoint them with oil, one of the things I'm saying to them is, "Remember that your sins are forgiven." So even if you die in this hospital. You're going to be healed. You're still going to live, right? So I kind of like that. Um, anyway, that's just one custom. Uh, again, it's kind of coming back into practice. It um, hasn't necessarily been the practice of uh, Lutheran pastors in the recent decades, but um, it's, a nice, it's a nice thing to add. Um, another thing just to mention, just, just kind of 
so you're aware, try it out of marker again, is, uh, so the two things that we mainly do, or the, the three things that we mainly do in the baptismal right here are, are these things, the candle, the, the cloth, and the oil. Um, there's another one that isn't in Luther's rites that Luther took out, but I do like um, a little bit. And again, the, the danger of these things, by the way, should say this. The danger of adding on all these customs is what Luther was afraid of, which is that then people forget about the water, <laughs> right? And people forget about the word. Um, and we want to keep the water and the word central. That's what matters. But I do think these other things are nice and that they do teach if they're correctly taught and they're not misunderstood to be replacing the water or the word, right? So we don't want to say that if you get the candle and the cloth and the oil and the salt, then you don't need the water or the word, right? Um, the water and the word is the main thing, but these things are extra, and they do teach. So putting a little salt on the tongue of the person being baptized, that was something that was in older baptismal rites. And it's the exact same idea, really, not exactly the same, but the similar idea to the candle, that Christ says you are the salt of the world. And that... Um, Salt is this idea of preserving faith. And so what I like to do, what I've done a couple times, three or four times now with the babies we've had here, is when I visit the mother after they give birth and, and the, the, the newborn child before they're baptized, which I like to do. And um, we read Psalm 127 and 128 and talk about how children are a blessing. And it's very nice. Um there's nothing like visiting a newborn baby. Um, I'll take some salt and I'll read those passages and I'll say a prayer that's an old prayer and sprinkle just a little bit of salt on the baby's tongue. And um, I, I, that's very nice. And we talk about um, that they are hearing the word and that um, these that these babies are believing and that they that their faith is being preserved um, unto the waters of holy baptism. So uh, I think that's a nice little rite as well. Um, and there's a line in one of the prayers for the salt that says, now that you've blessed this child with the, their first taste of holy food. So it's also kind of looking forward to the Lord's Supper. That one day this child is also going to receive um, the holy food of, of Christ's body and blood. Um, that God feeds us. So that's a nice thing as well. Uh, just something I do for the babies whenever they're born. But that's an old baptismal rite as well. Okay. Uh, I'm going to skip why we should be baptized because we've already talked about that a lot. One, Jesus commands it in Matthew 28. Two, we're sinners, and we need to be saved from sin. Okay, that, those are the reasons why we should be baptized. Pretty simple. Um, how we should baptize, pouring or immersion, we already talked about that as well. Uh, that immersion is pretty standard in church history. That's not what the word baptize means. Uh, contrary to what some people will teach. But if you look at the usage of the word baptizo in Greek language, it just means to wash with water. It doesn't mean to immerse. Um, I mean, it can mean that, but it's not the only meaning by any means. So uh, there, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to immerse. And the reason that we don't immerse is, one, for kind of practical reasons that um, we at some point we kind of stopped building big immersion fonts. Um, and two, whenever the Baptist said, you have to immerse, the Lutheran said, well, we're not going to. So, um, which is fine. It's good. All right. I want to spend the rest of the time mostly uh, talking about infant baptism. So, 
This already came up a lot in the scripture passages. So probably the main one is Acts 2, where the people are taught about Jesus' death and resurrection. They're cut to the heart. They say, what should we do, Peter? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. This gift is for you and your children. Okay? And there's no little footnote there that says, except for little tiny baby children. <laughs> right? Um, so that's that's maybe the fir- main verse to go to. But the, the book um, here gives a lot of helpful little arguments for the scriptural arguments, I should say, for baptizing infants. Um, so, yeah, first of all, uh, Matthew 28 is kind of similar in some ways to Acts 2. Um, go, therefore, and baptize all nations. Um, last time I checked, babies are included in a nation. Um, that they're also citizens of the nation, right? Um, it's a and but the even the broader point there is that baptism is always spoken of in these universal terms, right? It's not kind of uh, limited terms. So this is different than the Lord's Supper, right? If you look at the Lord's Supper in First Corinthians. 11, um, there's a lot of limitations that Paul gives for the Lord's Supper. That's not the same for baptism, right? It's always kind of universal for baptism. So that's kind of another thing. Um, okay, but the let's go ahead and turn here. Luke 18, 16 to 17. Th- this might be in some ways even better than Acts 2, even though this isn't specifically talking about baptism, but then you also ask the question. Anyway, we'll get there. So uh, Luke 18. Sixteen to seventeen. Let the children come to me. <clears throat> yep. Okay, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for such for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Alright, so first of all, a little another Greek lesson here. The uh, word for little children there is the Greek word for infants. Um, I think it's brephos is what it is, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, But it's the word for for infants. So uh, when Jesus says, let the little children come to me, I think this is also in Mark 8. But um, the reading from Mark, whatever, wherever this is in Mark, because it's also in Mark is what we generally read at baptisms, which is interesting. Um, I think th- that might be a Luther thing, but that he, he put that as the gospel reading. Anyway, uh, the so first of all, Jesus says, let the little infants come to me. Like, let the, the smallest of children, right? And you have that in, the way they do this in English, handle it in English, is they say little children, so that you know it's little ones, right? Like, But the problem with that is that when we think of little kids, we generally think of maybe like six-year-olds. When um, instead, then we think we think of like infants, toddlers, then little kids. But the word actually includes all of that in in Greek. So just just so you know, that's a it's a broader use of the term little children. Um, let them come to me. Okay, so where is Jesus? Where do we get his cross and resurrection? Well, at least one of the places is baptism, right? Uh, So the book talks about this as the ordinary means of receiving the kingdom of God. How do you get into the kingdom? What's the ordinary means that you're brought into the kingdom of God? Baptism. Baptism. That's, That's the ordinary means. So when Jesus says, let them come to me, for of such is the kingdom then why would we think that there would be another way? Why would we think that there would be an extraordinary way that they would come in? So uh, the Baptists, uh, who are our friends, teach 
that children are saved because they haven't reached the age of accountability yet. They're not accountable for their sin. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, unfortunately for them. Uh, and I say unfortunately because it's not good to be an heir, right? We we don't we don't want them to be an heir. We hope they repent. Um, Isn't that where they say we were conceived in sin? So Psalm 51. So this this ties together Luke 18, Psalm 51, Romans 3. They tie together in this way. We need the kingdom of God because we're sinners. Psalm 51 says, In sin did my mother conceive me. We're born sinful. Romans 3 says, No one is righteous. No, not one. Not a single person. Not ever. No way. No how. That's a paraphrase. Um, You can read Romans 3. It's basically like that. Um, Not even little babies. Right? We're all born with sin. Inherited from Adam. So we need to enter the kingdom of God. What's the ordinary means we enter that? By baptism. And what does Jesus say? He says, let the little children, let the babies come to me, for to such is the kingdom of God. And whoever would hinder them. I lost my spot. Oh, there it is. Let's look at the wrong paragraph. Uh, whoever does not. Oh, well, that, sorry. That's another verse. We'll, we'll get there. Um, but. Um, He says, truly, I say to you, amen, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will by no means enter. So not only are infants, little babies uh, supposed to come into the kingdom of God, supposed to receive Jesus, but they are they are the uh, we'll just say infants. Slash children, right? Little children. Little children. The littler, the better. They're the image of faith. So one of the things the Baptist will say is that only believers can be baptized. And I say, amen. Absolutely true. Only believers should be baptized. Uh, Ethiopian eunuch, X8, right? It's a believer's baptism. That's fine. But who has faith? Who's a believer? Well, little little infants um, who are faithfully brought to the waters of baptism. These are the image. This is the image of faith. Because what is what is faith? What's another word for faith? Something you can't see, but you know it's happening. Yeah, so faith is the assurance of things hoped for, belief of things not seen. What's another word for that? Trust or yeah, belief. I like trust, and it's in some sense right a blind trust. Uh, who else better blindly trust people than a little baby, right? That they can't do anything, right? They can't save themselves. They're completely dependent. Um, that another term for faith. One of my college professors said this, and I've always loved this. A term for faith is honesty about dependency. Being honest that you are dependent on God. Right? That's what faith is. And who else is honest about their dependence than the little baby who cries for his food all the time? Right? Um, they're completely honest that they need your help. <laughs> um, and if a little baby can do that for his mother or his father, right? if a little baby can have such blind trust... Uh, Obviously, he should be able to do that for his Lord. And faith, blind trust, faith, honesty about dependency, none of these things have to do with cognitive understanding. right? Our faith is not cognitive. Our faith is from the heart. Um, our faith is not bound up to language ability. right? Someone who is deaf and mute, they don't have language. They can still have faith. Uh, someone who is um, mentally, what's the politically correct word now? Yeah. Handicap challenged. Yeah. Uh, can never keep up with what the current 
correct word is, um, is still able to have faith, even though they might not understand the Bible very well. Right? The same is true with children. So uh, Jesus makes it clear that children are the image of faith. So, of course, they should be brought to the waters, right? Um, yeah, Romans, uh, Luke 7. So, um, yeah, it goes on. Uh, Luke 17, 2, um, Jesus even gives a warning to those who would uh, cause a child to stay in their sin or cause a child to sin. Um, that it would be better if a millstone would be tied around their neck and they'd be thrown into the sea. So that's kind of a harsh thing, right? But uh, it is true that it is it is a travesty, in my opinion, that um, American Christian children are kept from the waters of baptism, right? That they're kept um, without this uh, beautiful gift of forgiveness of sins, right? Now, does their faith still save them? Yeah, absolutely. Their faith uh, still saves them, but. It's this question of why not, you know, why not be baptized, right? The question isn't so much why be baptized. We know what it does. The question is why not? Why wouldn't you? Um, and then there's this section here Roman, about Romans 10 and 2 Timothy 3.15 that uh, – oh, I also, skipped, I also skipped one. There's also really good evidence that children, uh, babies can have faith in Luke 1 when John the Baptist does what? In the womb, when he comes in the presence, yeah, he leaps and it says he's filled with the spirit, right? He's filled with the spirit and he leaps in the womb. So uh, obviously, and we take that as a sign that these babies can have faith, right? That's not unique to John the Baptist. Um, Babies can have have faith when they um, come to the presence of Jesus. Um, and then also Romans 10 and 2 Timothy 3.15. So um, faith comes by the hearing of the word of Christ. It's Romans 10.17. And um, when Christian parents are bringing their, Christ- their children uh, to the uh, divine service and they're hearing – I don't like – I don't care if not everyone can understand my sermon, by the way. <laughs> um, like the sermon is for everyone, even if – they don't fully understand every little word of it. I mean, I try and make it very understandable, and I try and make it understandable even to children to some degree. I mean, not all of it's going to be, but um, the word preached and the word read is for everyone, regardless of cognitive understanding. Um, there is a certain mystery there, and um, however the Lord blesses that word in the hearts of believers is good with me. Um, but this verse, Second Timothy three fifteen, whenever Paul's talking to Timothy and he says, from infancy, from the time when you were one of these little child, these little children, and um, maybe it's not Timothy. There's an old tradition that um, one of these later pastors in the New Testament, or maybe it's Polycarp, which is an apostle that John, or a pastor that John teaches um, in the early church, is one of the children that goes and sits on Jesus' lap in this um, story in Luke 18. But um, anyway, I can't remember. It might be Timothy, though. That's what I was thinking. I'm, I'm trying to remember if it's Timothy that it, the, the tradition goes that he was the child who went to set. Anyway. Um, that'd be nice. It doesn't matter. Um, but the the Bible says in Second Timothy three that Paul says to him, "From infancy you have known the holy scriptures. From infancy, right? So babies can uh, hear the word and receive it, right? Uh, however that looks, like we don't know exactly what that. Uh, we I don't take it, you know, some kind of cognitive sense. But then they grow up in that word." And they learn to understand it, right? Um, and they grow in it, just like we're all growing in the Word. Uh, so I think all of those, uh, that's a variety of scripture there. But all of those are reasons why it just makes sense to baptize infants, right? And not to mention it was the practice of the church for basically 1,600 years or so until the Anabaptists came along and said, why are you doing that? 
let's do something else, right? Um, which is kind of silly. So, all right. Um, the final, uh, I guess we're, I'm out of time here, but um, I'll just make say this one more time. Uh, you can read this in the book if you have the book, but the sign of the cross is a baptismal symbol. So I'd say somewhere between 30 and 50% of our people will sometimes make the sign of the cross, um, if I had to guess. I don't know. I don't pay that much attention um, because most of the time when we do that, I'm facing the other direction. But um, I see a lot of people, a significant amount of people make the sign of the cross. If you didn't know this, the sign of the cross is not just a Roman Catholic thing. Uh, the sign of the cross has been used by Lutherans um, forever uh, since we got kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church, or since Luther got kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and what it is is because the because baptism connects us to the cross – to put the sign of the cross on you, it's that it's again this the seal, right? We've been we've been marked, we've been stamped as uh, gods. It's to remember that we have that stamp, that we have that seal. And so um, there's a number of places in the divine service at the beginning, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the end, those are the two times I can see people doing it um, uh, with the ironic blessing, the um, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. Uh, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Um, a couple other places um, is at the end of the creed. I believe the little cross symbol is in there at the end of the creed. Life everlasting. So um, what is the proper we'll, we'll do that in one second. Uh, and then also the other place I really like to make the sign of the cross is in the Lord's prayer at deliver us from evil. Because baptism rescues us from death and the devil, right? So those are the places I like to make the sign of the cross. Uh, traditionally, if you look on page 150 in your book, the uh, it do, it doesn't matter. You can do it any number of ways. If you go left to right or right to left, it, the purpose is that you remember your baptism. So it's not, you know, the, it's not some NFL superstar doing some ceremonial thing in the, in the uh, end zone because it's, you know, superstitious. Um, it's not superstition. It's just – it's there to remember your baptism. So um, I'm not too specific on how you do it. But if you want to know the traditional way, it's three fingers, which is Trinitarian because we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right. So three fingers. Um, and uh, forehead. I, I look at the chart so I don't mess it up. <laughs> uh, so, and it's it's the four points of the cross. So forehead, chest, shoulder, shoulder. And uh, I normally go, yeah, right right and then left. To my right and left. Yeah, that's what I do. So. Um, the, sometimes when I see more formal pastors, like, who are more formal than me. No, it's hard to imagine. Uh, they exist, trust me. Uh, for some reason, they do this thing. I don't know. Maybe it just like looks more official. I don't know. I just do this. Yeah, so... Um, but if you want to make the sign of the cross, it's good because it's just to remember your baptism, right? So it's to remember that we're beginning the service in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the baptized... We're ending the service as the baptized. We are um, being delivered from evil as the baptized, and our life everlasting is from our baptism. Yeah. You mentioned that last time, uh, in times of stress and trouble, it's a good relief to be Yeah, so Luther says in the large catechism, when you're teaching children to make the sign of the cross, just make it when you're scared. Um and that's not a, again, it's not a superstitious thing, but it's to remind you that the Lord delivers you from all death and evil, and that you have life everlasting. So there's no reason to be afraid. So that's yeah, that's nice. Um, so yeah, whenever you're stressed or afraid, you can make the sign of the cross. So 
you said last week about teaching the children, even if they didn't understand why, that as they grow up, they would yeah. grow. Yeah, that's what Luther... They were already doing it, then they would grow yeah. up in understanding why. Yeah, that's Luther's advice yeah. in the large catechism is they're not going to understand it at first, but then they grow up and they understand it, and then it means something to them. So, um, Yeah, we... We teach our kids to do it. Sometimes they're really good at it, and then they'll go weeks at a time and like can't ever get it right. So it's fine. <laughs> That's how they do. It. That's most things. So. All right. Any final questions or comments, thoughts? Sorry, I went over. But now we're done with baptism. So it's, it's fine. All right. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we. Thank and praise you for this time together. We pray that you would be with us as we go throughout our weeks and days, and we pray that you would help us to remember our baptisms, to help us to remember that our identity is hidden in you with God, and that uh, no matter what strife or suffering comes our way, we have been baptized. We have been rescued from death and the devil. We have life everlasting, and our sins have been forgiven. Keep us Uh, always focused on this reality that we may live our lives as lives already dead to sin and alive to you in Christ Jesus. We pray this through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.